Now, as I say, this is one of the briefest and one of the richest summaries of Christian doctrine, of the doctrine of Christian salvation that you find anywhere in the Bible. It was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, who called it a staggering and glorious statement. It is, in fact, in the form of a doxology, that is, a song of praise to God. And various people have pointed out that when you begin to deal with this glorious doctrine of Christian salvation, it causes you to break out into doxology. It is better sung than said, uh, Benjamin Warfield once said, and, and in so many ways that's true. Now, it is an introductory paragraph to the epistle to the Ephesians, but the significant thing is that it is in fact this whole passage from verse 3 to verse 14, one long and fairly complex sentence. It would be an impossibility, I think, for us in English to try to produce a sentence that went from the beginning of verse 3 to the end of verse 14, but this is exactly what Paul has done. Somebody says Paul launches into this glorious doxology with a majestic contempt for grammar and analysis. However that may be, there is no doubt at all that there is a very definite structure in this great statement of the Christian gospel, both in terms of language and of theme. And you will notice if you look at the passage, you may have noticed it while we were reading it earlier, that it has three parts punctuated by some such phrase in each case as to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace. In verses 6, 12 and 14 you get that kind of marker set down. In verse 6 to the praise of his glorious grace. At the end of verse 12 that we might be for the praise of his glory. And the end of verse 14 to the praise of his glory. Now these divisions also highlight the fact that this doxology of praise for the glory of the Christian gospel of salvation is Trinitarian in its form. That is, it is concerned with the three persons of the Trinity or of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And again, if you look more carefully at verses 3 to 6, you'll see that they are concerned with God the Father, especially with his electing, predestining work to bring about our salvation. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons, and so on. So the theme of verses 3 to 6 is really the theme of the electing, predestining work of God the Father. Verses 7 to 12 are really concerned with the redeeming, atoning work of God the Son. 
In him, that is, in the one he loved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, and so on. And verses 7 to 12 deal in broad terms with the redeeming, atoning work of God the Son. Verses 13 to 14 deal with the third person of the Trinity, and they deal with the sealing, guaranteeing work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, and again with the final note to the praise of his glory. Now the point of all that, of course, is simply this, that when the salvation of God's people is the theme, then all the resources of the whole Godhead are summoned in order to bring about the full glory of the salvation that God from before the foundation of the world has planned and in Jesus Christ has procured for his people. God the Father plans and devises this salvation. God the Son purchases and procures it. And God the Holy Spirit seals and guarantees it to his people. In fact, many people see this reference to the Trinity uh, brought together and summarized and introduced in verse 3. I'm not entirely sure if uh, that is true, but uh, you can see why people think so. In verse 3, he begins, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. That is, uh, people would say, with every blessing of the Holy Spirit, uh, which he has given to us in Christ. Now we need to ask and turn to think in, in this uh, short time we have this evening for the sake of the subject about uh, what are the blessings which are ours in Christ, first of all, in the electing love of God the Father, because this is the theme of verses 3 to 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in him, because... He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. It is of great significance, I think, that when Paul is expounding the character of the Christian gospel, because that is really what he is doing, he begins not with man and his need. Now just think how often when you are contemplating what the gospel is that you so readily begin with man and his need. 
Whereas when Paul is expounding the truth of the gospel, he begins with God and his plan and his purposes. In verse 4, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And what Paul is pressing upon us is that the gospel begins with God. Now that's not just a case of theological hair splitting. It's one of the profoundest emphases that we need to make in these days because let me show you how it is that the gospel of Jesus Christ in its biblical sense is so often distorted when we begin with man. What happens is, you see, we say, now, what is the problem that we have in the world today? What is the problem that man has in the world today? The problem is he is unhappy. He is very miserable, and that's very true in the modern world, because we are in a world that is so dominated by sin. And we say, what is the problem? He is confused. He is in despair. He has got so many burdens, so many problems. And when we begin to preach the gospel to people, we can so easily begin there and say, is this your condition? Is this the situation that you are in? Well, now, what you need is God's grace, God's love, Jesus Christ and all that God has provided in him. Now that sounds so right in so many ways, but I wonder if you can see what it is actually doing. It is actually making God man's servant. And one of the great problems of much Christian living in our time is the fruit of that kind of evangelism, I would suggest to you. It is that so many people have the idea that God is there to be at my beck and call. He is there to do whatever I ask him. He is there to keep me happy. And this is God's great business in the universe. Whereas when the gospel begins with God, we discover that the whole thing is turned the other way around and that man's only significance in the universe is as he serves the glory and praise of God, you see. Now that is not to say that we won't diagnose the situation that man is in and uh, recognize the need to apply the gospel remedy to it. But the emphasis of the apostolic gospel is on God and his purposes primarily rather than primarily upon man and his need. The two words that Paul uses to describe God's gracious purpose in salvation are the words electing, verses 4 and 11, he chose us in him, and predestining, verses 5 and 11, where you find the same words coming uh, 
In these two verses he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. The two words probably express a slightly different emphasis upon the same truth. Predestination, predestination and election are probably somewhat different emphases. If they emphasize something different, what they emphasize is this. Election refers to the personal choice by God of a people as a bridegroom chooses a bride or as adoptive parents adopt their children. The choice they make is what the Bible calls election. And that supremely is seen when Christ is choosing his bride and when God is choosing his people. Predestination refers more to the plan and purpose that God has in thus choosing a people. Well then, what is this biblical doctrine of election of which Paul makes so much, not only here, but as I'll be saying in a moment through the rest of the Bible? You'll notice in verses 4 to 6, for example, that there are several things that Paul says about it. Five of them that I have uh, particularly uh, chosen to highlight. The first is that this election by which God chooses a people for himself is sovereign and unconditional. You notice in verse 5, he predestined, in verse 4 rather, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now he says the same sort of thing in verse 11. But the emphasis Paul is making is that when God chose us as his people, he did so as a sovereign act with no condition attached to it whatsoever except that he was fulfilling his own will. Look how he puts it again in verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Now there could be nothing clearer than that. When God chooses a people, he does so as an act of his sovereign will. And he does so unconditionally. The only ground on which God chooses a people is that this is his good pleasure. The second thing that Paul emphasizes is that this electing love of God is eternal and unchanging. That is, it was a choice made before the world began. 
Verse 4, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. So the electing love of God cannot have its origin in anything that we have done or are because he chose us before we were born. He chose us before the creation was formed. And it is therefore eternal and unchanging. And his love is a love that is not altered either by time or by circumstances. The third thing that Paul emphasizes is that it is gracious and unmerited. In verse 5, the last two words of verse 4 probably belong to the sentence that begins verse 5. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. So the only thing that is magnified by God's choice of a people is God's glorious grace. There is nothing in us that causes him to choose us. It is his glorious grace, his undeserved love, which is at the root of it. The fourth thing, do you notice, is that it is in Christ that he chooses us. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. And the reason for that is that all the blessings of the Christian gospel are found in Christ. And very significantly, Christ is God's elect one in the ultimate sense. Do you remember in Isaiah 42 at the beginning, for example, the servant of Jehovah is called my chosen one. Now, the word chosen is applied to an individual first, to Jesus as the servant of Jehovah. And when we are united to him in the purpose of God, we are chosen in him because all the blessings of the Christian gospel are to be found in Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to ask the question, when was I united to the Lord Jesus Christ? If all the blessings of the gospel are to be found in Christ and the way I receive them is through union with him, there are many answers to that question. You might say, I was united to Christ when I believed because the New Testament speaks about believing into the Lord Jesus Christ and the union we have with the Lord Jesus is therefore a faith union. And I am united to Jesus Christ by faith. We might also say I am united to Jesus Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. Because, Paul says, we are all baptized by the one Spirit into the one body. 
So how do I become united to Jesus Christ? I become united to him when the Holy Spirit baptizes me into Christ. Now that's how my union with Christ takes place. Incidentally, that's the main reason that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a second experience of some Christians after conversion, but a primary experience of all Christians at conversion. It's how I am united to Jesus. We are baptized by the one Spirit into the one body. I am united to Jesus Christ, therefore, by the Holy Spirit. So it's a faith union, it's a spiritual union, but here, do you notice, Paul is telling us that God has actually united us to Christ before the creation of the world. He chose us in him before the world was created. You say, I can't understand that. Well, join the club, as they say, neither can I. But it's what scripture teaches, is it not? In him he chose us before the creation of the world in order that we might be holy in his sight and blameless. And this is the great purpose of God in election. He unites us to Christ in an eternal sense. We are therefore eternally one with him. And we sing about that in one of our hymns. But there is a fifth uh, thing that Paul highlights, and we need to look at it just before we move on. That is, that uh, this, un this uh, election is a moral and unequivocal election in its purpose. The purpose for which God chooses a people, do you notice, is this, verse 4. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now you see, my Christian brothers and sisters, this is what puts holiness of life in its true context when we are thinking about it. Holiness is not just something that we began to think about after we were born again because we found we had a new nature and new desires and new concerns. Holiness for you and for me was in the heart of God before he created the universe. You grasp that? That's the real background of holiness. This is why when people ignore the moral content of Christian sanctification, they are ignoring and flying in the face of the eternal purpose of God which he had in his mind before the foundation of the world. And he chose us for holiness. Now, of course, that's the context again and again and again and again in which the doctrines of election and predestination occur in Scripture. 
The doctrines of election and predestination never occur in scripture in the field of controversy. It's a very interesting thing. They always do in, in Christian conversation and discussion. You discover that otherwise quite normally placid people suddenly look as if they're going to burst a blood vessel whenever somebody begins to read a passage of scripture about election or predestination. But you see, if you go through the New Testament, you find that the doctrines of election and predestination are not banners to be waved by Calvinists or bombs to be dropped on Arminians. They are rather buttresses for the people of God to be established in the faith. How do I know that all things work together for good to those who love God? Tell me that. Oh, you say, I know it because Scripture says it. Ah, but that's not enough. Because the Apostle Paul tells us how we know all things work together for good to those who love God. And this is how we know Romans 8 is followed by, 28 is followed by Romans 8, 29, which comes as a surprise sometimes to people and shouldn't. Uh, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. Now, do you see the moral element in the predestining work of God? He chose us that we might be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So from our eternal choice before the foundation of the world until our glory when the world is no more, God goes on one step after another and as Charles Haddon Spurgeon said brethren there is no stopping this God and that's of course just what Paul says when he says he who began a good work in you will go on to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ but that's the point of this doctrine and we really do it great damage when whether we love it or suspect it, we bring it into the field of controversy because you never find that it is in that context in Scripture. No, let me then uh, bring three conclusions that one would draw from this about election. And I want just to... Uh, race through them for the rest of our time this evening. First of all, this doctrine is, without question, a biblical doctrine. And let me say to those of you who may have some doubt about it that one of the things that you really do need to come to terms with is that the Bible teaches it. However you are going to understand it, there is absolutely no question. From the early days Deuteronomy chapter 7, for example, when God is addressing his people, he says he has chosen them. Not because they were a people greater than any other people. He chose them because he had set his heart in love upon them. There was no other ground. There was no other condition. He chose a people because he had set his heart upon them. 
Now, the book of Deuteronomy uses that word election 29 times. Jesus, of course, spoke of it very frequently in John's Gospel, especially, probably. Uh, for example, when he is addressing his disciples, and again you will notice it's within the context of encouraging them and making them steadfast and strong. He says, ah, oh, now just remember, you did not choose me, but I chose you and ordained you that you'd go and bring forth fruit. All that the Father has given to me will come to me, says Jesus. He says those who are his own, the Father has given them to him. And all whom the Father has given to him will come to him. Romans 9 to 11 is all about this very subject of God's electing grace. <clears throat> so it's a biblical doctrine. The second thing that one is bound to say is that it is a difficult doctrine. And it's a difficult doctrine for many reasons. There is no doubt whatsoever about that. And uh, it produces so many problems in our thinking. And so many of them are insoluble problems. Let me just mention one or two of these problems that arise in our mind and thinking about this whole question. Uh, people have parodied, of course, the doctrine of election, principally Robert Burns. Uh, you know, Holy Willie's prayer, yin to heaven and ten to hell and are for thy glory. And uh, this is the great parody that has produced a lot of misunderstanding of a capricious God. Uh, in the minds of people but that is not found in the Bible that's found in Burns and you really need to be sure that your thinking is shaped by the Bible rather than by Burns please God um, let me uh, comment briefly then on three of the difficulties that people feel one is the difficulty of human responsibility in relation to election um, many people will imagine that there is a great difficulty here. I choose the phrase human responsibility rather than the phrase free will because it's a very interesting thing, you know. We talk a great deal about man's free will whereas the Bible's great emphasis is on the fact that man's will as a sinner is in bondage, not in freedom. That his freedom as a sinner is not the same thing as the freedom of man in the Garden of Eden, for example. I just happened to bring the Westminster Confession of Faith with me this evening so that I could uh, read a little bit of it to you. Listen to what the Westminster Confession says. Man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which is good and well-pleasing to God, but yet mutably or changeably, so that he might fall from it. So in the Garden of Eden, man had freedom of will to obey God, yet mutably, changeably, the Westminster Confession says, so that he might fall from it. But man by his fall into a state of sin 
hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation, so as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Now, that's exactly, of course, what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2, the very next chapter, when he says, what is the condition in which God finds us when he comes to save us? And the answer to the question is, you were dead, he says. Dead in trespasses and sins. And that is why it is only the grace of God, only a resurrection, only a new birth that can save us. Because we do not have the freedom of will to rise up and serve God. Our will is in bondage, which is the testimony of Martin Luther's most famous book, probably entitled The Bondage of the Will, to which James Packer has written an introduction that's almost as good as... Well, I'd better not say that, had I, in case... But it's very good. Uh, Packer has written an introduction to that great uh, book, But you see, in relation to the whole question of human responsibility, God clearly tells us in Scripture that he holds us responsible for our sin and for our rebellion against him. And we may say, now I don't understand how God does that. And so many ways, of course, that's not surprising because God is infinite and we are finite. God is perfect and we are sinners. And we would not be able to expect to understand the tensions between such things as these and the problems that arise in the whole realm of our thinking about uh, election and predestination and John Calvin I abbreviate a quotation for the sake of time uh, but John Calvin has got something very important to say to us in this connection he says the best rule is not only in learning to follow wherever God leads but also when he makes an end of teaching to cease from wishing to be wise. Now I'll read that to you again. I still remember the first time I ever read that, and it helped me enormously, and I think it's really so important. The best rule is not only in learning to follow wherever God leads, that is, wherever He gives us clarity in our thinking, but also when He makes an end of teaching to cease from wishing to be wise. So the first problem, the tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty is there. If you're interested in following that through, there is an outstanding uh, little book by Jim Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, published by IVP. second question that people will ask is the question about divine justice. Uh, Is God fair? 
Now, Paul deals with this question in Romans chapter 9. Uh, we may read such things as he says in Ephesians 1, and uh, we, we may say, um, is this really fair, that God should choose some and correspondingly bypass others? How can we possibly think of God as a God of justice if this is so? Well now, people were obviously asking that question when Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans and in chapter 9 verse 14 he says, what then shall we say? Because he has been speaking of how God chose Jacob and not Esau. He says, what shall we then say? Is God unjust? The very question. Not at all, he says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now do you see, it looks almost as if Paul is dodging the question. He says, is God unjust? No. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. But Paul is actually answering the question, you see. And the way he is answering it is to say this to us. It's not a question of justice. Salvation, my dear friends, is not a matter of justice. Let me just ask you, do you want justice from God? Is that what you want on the day of judgment? Do you want justice from Him? God knows I don't want justice from God. I would run a thousand miles if I thought I was going to receive justice. That is my just deserts from God. What I need from God is not justice, but mercy. Now mercy by definition is something God bestows in His grace. We praise Him if we receive it, but we can never complain if we don't. See the point? Shakespeare got it beautifully in The Merchant of Venice. I hope you still read Shakespeare. And he makes one of his characters say, If justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us would receive salvation. Now that's true. And that's exactly Paul's point. Divine justice is never the issue in the question of election and predestination. Because the mystery of election is not that God passes over some, but that he chooses any. That's the mystery of election. Now the third question that bothers many people is the question of evangelism. If God has already chosen his people, what is the point of evangelism? And of missionary activity generally. That's one of the great issues that bothers people. Uh, why should we go? and evangelize if God has already chosen a people and if they are eternally secure in Christ even before they are born why should we go out and plead with them to be reconciled in Christ's name? Well the answer to that is that God has not only chosen a people but he has also chosen the means by which he will save them and the means by which God will save them is through the foolishness of preaching. Indeed, it is the electing love of God which gives point and authority to evangelism. 
Do you remember the Apostle Paul? I often quote his dreams. Uh, that's because I dream vividly. Bill Hughes was telling us the other week, he dreams in technicolor. I dream in Panavision. But uh, I, I've always been interested in Paul's dreams. Do you remember when he dreamed when he was in Corinth? He was greatly discouraged. And he was discouraged about his evangelism. There was so much opposition. There was no fruit. Nothing seemed to be happening in this overwhelmingly pagan city. I remember walking amongst the ruins of Corinth on one occasion and wondering where was it that Paul had this dream. And God came to him in the middle of the night and do you remember what he said to him? Be of good cheer, Paul, he says. Be of good cheer. For I have much people in this city. Now what about that? The amazing thing is, you see, they weren't converted yet. But he says, Paul, go on preaching the gospel to them. Preach your heart out to them, for I have a people in this city. And they will be brought to Christ through the preaching of the everlasting gospel. That's what he's saying. Now, it's that, you see, Bishop Ryle says, preaching is the hand of God by which he reaches out to draw to Christ all those whom he has chosen. Now, many people will say, but my problem is, of course, that how can I go out to people and preach the gospel to them and tell them of Jesus mighty to save when I don't know if any of them is chosen? Now you'll forgive me if I answer that briefly, won't you? Because the brief answer is, that question of whether they are chosen or not is none of your business. God has never ever said, the people that you are to go out and preach the gospel to are those you know are elect, because we don't know that at all. And that's none of our business. Our business is to obey the command of the Lord Jesus Christ, go into all the earth and preach the gospel to all nations. But because we know that God is the God of infinite grace and power who has chosen a people for himself, that is what gives authority to our evangelism. Now, here's the last thing I want to say. It is not only a biblical doctrine and a doctrine that is hard to understand. It is also an infinitely profitable doctrine. There are certain things which a grasp of the doctrine of election should produce in us. And the first is this. It is a biblical humility. I want to say to you this evening, my dear friends, that there is nothing in all God's universe that will produce true biblical humility, which is a different thing altogether from a cringing sense of inferiority. True biblical humility is born in the seedbed of the doctrine of election. 
Because it tells me that it is not for anything in me that God has looked in mercy upon me. Indeed, it does precisely the reverse of what it does to Holy Willie in Burns' prayer. It produces not a sense of self-importance, but a sense of true, balanced, biblical humility. Not what I am, O Lord, but what Thou art, that, that alone can be my soul's true rest. Second thing it produces is a spiritual security. Because I know that my eternal well-being rests in the choice of a God who from eternity to eternity never changes his mind when he has begun a good work in us, he will go on to perfect it. When I rest on that, I have security in God which is unmatched. And the last thing it gives is, of course, ethical energy. And that ethical energy comes from the knowledge that God has chosen us in Christ in order that we might be made holy. This is his purpose. This is his design, that he might choose a people who will be a holy people. Now, as I walk through this world and contemplate the mystery that I was chosen, as Robert Murray McShane writes in his hymn, chosen not for good in me. I begin to ask, why, O oh God, have you set your love upon me? It was not for anything in me. Why have you set your love upon me? Why, from before the foundation of the world, have you chosen me to be your child? And his answer is to make you like Jesus. That's why I've chosen you. That's why I've made you my own. To make you like Jesus. Predestined to be conformed to his image. That's what the doctrine of election is all about. And in the last analysis, that's the only evidence of my election. Holiness is the evidence of election. So says the New Testament. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Let's pray together. Father, we are so conscious of being like little children paddling in the vast depths of the oceans of your wisdom. And we pray this evening that in your great mercy you would come and enlighten us in our understanding and teach us increasingly from your truth and help us that your word may become to us the buttress and bastion of our souls. May your grace abide with us this evening, Lord, and may our souls be encouraged and lifted up in Christ.